We're going to continue our Galatians series, No Other Gospel. Last Sunday, we looked at the second part of Paul's autobiography in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, where he describes how he stood up to the Judaizers who were trying to poison the Galatian churches with a false gospel, you know, their message, salvation by faith plus circumcision. Really, it's Jesus plus something else. And, and in that part, he also rebuked the apostle Peter, which was a surprise. And he rebuked Barnabas, who was his really his sidekick, and then several other Messianic Jews who were all together acting hypocritically when they broke fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile brothers in the Lord to appease these Judaizers. And this happened when, when, the, apostle, uh, when, when the apostle Peter and others made a trip up to Syrian Antioch. And so we, we looked at his autobiography where he rebukes them and, and does these things. It was, it was actually pretty a fascinating text. I think we spent more time in Acts 15 than we did anywhere else because that's where this played out. We learned that um, acting out of step with the truth of the gospel, that they were all acting out of step with the truth of the gospel because the gospel doesn't require circumcision. It doesn't require anything other than really repentance and faith in Christ. Um, the gospel doesn't distinguish between Jew or Gentile or Scythian or barbarian, male and female, circumcised, uncircumcised. The gospel goes out to all and God has a very diverse church that is, is made up of all sorts of different ethnicities. But the gospel really doesn't see people ethnically or, or any of those things. And so they were all acting out of step with the gospel because they were separating from this group and joining this group. And it was a bloody mess. Now, in the next section, Paul continues his admonition, his correction on... Peter's hypocritical behavior, and he does it now by describing how one is justified before God. This is like the section we're going to look at today, it really is a continuation of, of Paul's correction to Peter on that day when Peter sided with the Judaizers. And when we speak of being justified which is a word that we use in, in, in our Christian lingo. It's a doctrinal term. When we speak of that, we're actually talking about salvation. In a way, justification is synonymous with salvation because salvation at the end of the day has to do with a person standing before God. And so does justification. If a person is justified, they are essentially saved from God's wrath and judgment. If a person is not justified or unjustified, they are not saved from God's wrath and judgment. So when we speak of justification, we're really talking about salvation. Now, the Judaizers were saying that people are justified before God by what they believe and by what they do. That justification comes to sinners through a combination of faith plus effort or faith plus works. They basically preached a dual justification message. 
believe in Jesus, get circumcised, and you will be justified by and before God. That was their gospel message, which Paul says was no gospel at all. Now, it's imperative that we understand that the Apostle Peter did not believe this doctrine. He didn't. He didn't believe that a person is justified by faith plus works. He didn't believe that at all. If he had believed that, he wouldn't have been an apostle. But he was acting like he believed it when he abandoned the uncircumcised Gentile believers and went over and started fellowshipping with the Judaizers. He didn't actually believe it, but he was acting like he believed it. He displayed an affirmation and a belief in this false doctrine when he did what he did. When Paul witnessed this, he was compelled to rebuke and educate Peter, an apostle, <laughs> and everyone present on the doctrine of justification. He essentially answers one of the most important questions ever asked, in my humble opinion. How is a sinner justified before God? That's a million-dollar question, is it not? How is a sinner made right and justified by God or before God? That's a great question, and that's essentially what he asks here. Are we justified by a combination of faith plus works or by faith alone? Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 21. I'm going to look at two things this morning. Firstly, we'll look at Paul's statement in verses 15 and 16. And then we will look at Paul's defense in verses 17 through 21. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and place ourselves under the authority of your word. Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you are firstly glorified, and secondly, that we are admonished and, and corrected or sanctified, whatever it is that you aim to do through your word with us, we pray that you do that. We pray that we are humble enough to receive what you are going to say to us this morning. We pray for those who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, bring about faith and repentance in them, that you would justify them, that you would begin to sanctify them, and that you would ultimately glorify them. And we pray for the rest of us, too. Father, I think that uh, most of us in this room would, would give a, a hearty amen to being justified by faith alone, but the great question that we have, uh, you have for those of us who believe that already is, is that really what we believe and are we living that way? Or are we doing all that we can to earn favor with you and uh, heaven forbid that we would even be attempting to earn salvation? If we are performers with you on stage, then we clearly do not understand this doctrine. We are not performers. We are not trying to earn our way with you. That's not the way it works. That's not the way grace works. And that is really the, the, the focal point in this message and in this text. Teach us about true biblical justification this morning. We submit ourselves to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the first section, Paul's statement, verses 15 and 16. This is what he says next in his verbal onslaught against Peter, who was being a bonehead. 
He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Well, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. <clears throat> this, is, this is a nuke. This is a nuclear missile striking its target. This is, this is an, an incredible set of statements here. In verse 15, Paul begins with an interesting statement that basically sets up his main point throughout the rest of the text. He begins by acknowledging that they are Jews by birth. And he's talking about himself and Peter and Barnabas and the other Messianic Jews that were there. He's talking about himself and everyone else. Hey, man, I get it. We are Jews, and that makes us different from Gentiles who are non-Jewish. And comparatively speaking, the, the Jews were given the covenant, they were given circumcision, they were given the Mosaic law, uh, they were given good works, they were given all of these things from the Lord. In fact, the messianic line comes through the Jews, Jesus came through them. I mean, they were given so much. Gentiles, however, were not given any of these things, non-Jews. And they had no law to guide them in right living or in pleasing God, right? They just kind of did whatever was right in their own minds or whatever their culture dictated. Sounds like America. And because they had no law and lived lawless lives and had no guide and no direction, the Jews typically called them sinners. Not that Paul is denying the fact that Jewish people are also sinners. He's just saying that they were not like Gentile sinners in that we, we have the law and we have the covenant and we have circumcision and we have these things that help us live for God. This is what he's saying. This is his point. But in verse 16, Paul tells Peter and everyone else that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day how Jewish you are because guess what? None of those things that we are justify a person before God. Doesn't matter if you have the Mosaic Law. Doesn't matter if you have the Covenant. Doesn't matter if you have circumcision. Some of you guys, I know you're so Jewish you got circumcised twice. That's a joke. <laughs> Doesn't matter how far you've gone with all of this. I know you were raised as Jews under the law and these things, but, but at the end of the day, yes, we are different from Gentiles. We have the law. We have circumcision. We have the covenants. We have the promises. Messiah comes through us. We have all this. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And I think it matters in a sense, but it doesn't matter when you're thinking of justification. Being Jewish doesn't give you a, it's not advantageous to being justified. That's essentially what he's saying. No amount of law keeping, right? We've got the Mosaic law, but no amount of law keeping can make a person right with God. Why? Because the root of sinfulness is in the fallen, it's in the fallenness of man's heart. It's not in his actions. It's in who he is. Man's basic problem is, is in what he is, not in what he does. That's the right way to look at it. 
Sinful acts are an outward expression of a depraved nature that is spiritually dead and thoroughly sinful. We sin because we are sinners. Sin doesn't make us sinners. We sin because we, are, we already are sinners. And, and the real issue is that the heart of man's spiritual dilemma is that he is ultimately incapable of overcoming the sinfulness that separates him from the holy God. His ethnic background, his pedigree, if you will, I know we use that term for dogs, but, you know, hey, some people talk about that. They certainly did at a church uh, that I know of that was looking for the right pedigree in a future pastor. And I'm like, what is he, a canine? Are you looking to hire a German shepherd? They shed a lot, so think about that. His ethnic background, his pedigree, upbringing, and works, all the works that he could do, all the things, all the strength he could muster to do all these good things, all of that together have zero impact because no one is justified by works of the law. I mean, you could take all of the righteous deeds of, of people who are outside of Christ and, and, and build a, a mountain of them, so to speak, but no one there is justified. It's not based on what you do. So we have to ask the question, then how then can a guilty, vile sinner be made righteous and thereby acceptable to God? Paul says very plainly here, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know we're Jews, and I know they're Gentile sinners. They don't have the law or any of that. But guess what? At the end of the day, no one's justified by works of the law. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that one is justified. Only faith in Jesus Christ can bring a person the gracious gift of, of righteousness that provides forgiveness and salvation. But you need to understand, because I think a lot of people get this wrong these days, they think of faith as just knowing some things about Jesus. Well, yeah, I believe he's a historical figure, and I, I kind of believe that he died for the world's sins and all that. You know, they have like this intellectual kind of angle on it. They know some things. It's like intellectual assent. And that's not what faith is. Faith is not intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died and rose for man's sin. It has to do with personal trust in his death to remove and forgive your sins. That's what faith is. Faith is not just knowing things about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus in an intimate, personal way where your life is different. If you say you know Jesus, but you're still living a total pagan life, you don't know Jesus. You know stuff about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. Because if you actually knew Jesus in the saving, justifying way, you'd have a different life. Would it be perfect? No but it would be different. You can't just believe that he died for sin. You've got to believe that he did that actually for you, and you're placing your trust in that finished work. And I think that faith also has to do with submission to him as Lord. James 4, 7. If you are someone who says you believe in Jesus, then you should have a submitted life to him. I submit my life to him. I live the way he calls me to live. I recognize that he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he is my personal Lord and I'm living my life under his lordship. 
in submission to Him. That's true faith. When the Bible talks about faith, it's not just mere intellectual assent. It is a living, breathing, transformative kind of thing. It is a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He, he, he's not just Sunday Jesus to you if you're a man or woman of faith. He's everyday Jesus. You're constantly relying on Him, constantly seeking Him for wisdom, constantly confessing your sins to Him because, boy, do we act like boneheads, don't we? It's an ongoing thing. So according to verse 16 and Paul and really Scripture here, the provision of justification by faith alone is God's answer to our ultimate dilemma and need, salvation. Paul's rebuke of Peter culminates here in verse 16 with one of the most forceful statements in the New Testament on the doctrine of justification. The very doctrine that Peter and the others were in effect renouncing by their hypocritical separation from these uncircumcised Gentile believers. And you know there's something else we need to understand and I think this, this point is being made by Paul here indirectly. Jewish and Gentile Christians are equals. Why? Same Lord, same spirit, same mode of justification through faith alone. So how can you view the Gentiles, how could Peter view the Gentiles a certain way here and leave them, and he has a different view of these Judaizers, and maybe it's based on fear, as it says in the text, but how can he view this group different from this group when that's not the way that it works? This group is justified by faith. In fact, the Judaizers, I don't think they were justified by faith. I don't even think they were saved. These are false teachers. But if you had a group of Gentile believers here and a group of uh, Jewish believers here, they're, they both have the same Lord and the same Spirit, the same salvation, the same justification. So you can't pick one group. There aren't even groups according to the gospel. We're the same. Now, we're not cookie-cuttered, and we're not robots. Faith, we're all given faith, you know, we're all given repentance and faith as gifts, and we have the spirit and all that, and, and the way we live out our lives is different from the Christian next to you and all that. But at the end of the day, salvation works exactly the same, even for the Old Testament saints. They were justified by faith, not by works. Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith. That's justification. It wasn't because of what he did. It's because of how he believed, and then he manifested uh, his faith, he proved his faith through obeying and taking his son up on the hill. You know the story, which is all a picture of Christ. The, the true believers at, at, in, in Antioch, the Jewish ones and the Gentile ones, they're, they're all the same because they're all justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. And, and Peter knows this. This is what's so crazy. This is why I like Peter so much because he's most like me. We do stupid things while knowing the truth, don't we? Sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes it's out of self-righteousness. Sometimes it's out of selfishness. Sometimes it's just, I don't know, just blatant stupidity. And this is like, the, this is the kingpin here. This is the big apostle. He knows these things. But he was afraid of the Judaizers. And, and he acted hypocritically, didn't he? Boy, that resonates with me. I'd like to really besmear and, and make fun of Peter, but I can't because I'd have to do it with a mirror in front of my face. 
because I do the same thing. And Paul rebukes him and he reminds him of the gospel. Isn't that awesome when you have a brother or sister who's nearby who says, hey, you're out of step with the gospel, pal. Well, actually, it's not all that much fun at the beginning, at the beginning right? Ah, you don't know nothing. Yeah, I do. You're out of step with the gospel. About two days later, you're like thanking that brother. Thank you, Bruce, for correcting Cameron that day. <laughs> it's usually me. Yeah. It was beautiful to watch you admonish him. I know I have no problems. And Paul is essentially rebuking him and reminding here of the gospel. I wonder if Paul's thinking, how can Peter, kind of the top dog apostle, not... How is this not working? How does he not understand? And I don't think he spent too much time trying to figure out what was going on here. He just basically went full bore, double barrel, shotgun gospel blast. We're justified by faith alone, Peter, not by works of the law. Listen to question 33 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is a wonderful doctrinal document. The question is, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is a perfect statement on that doctrine. And we see expressions of this wonderful doctrine, justification by faith, all over the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We see it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. We see it in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. We see it in John 6, 44 to 45, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. By the way, how many of you, uh, the book of Ephesians, according to Bruce, is your favorite book? It's one of my all-time favorite books in the Bible. I absolutely love it. We see it in chapter 1 there in Ephesians, or as I would say it properly, Ephesians. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. We see it again repeated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Romans 5, 19. Obviously, we see it here in Galatians 2, 16. What am I telling you? It's a biblical doctrine. We see it all over the New Testament. We see expressions of it in the Old Testament. I wish I had time to read all these verses. That's your work. After the sermon, you go look them up, but you'll see it there. If we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we are clothed in His righteousness, and God declares us justified. That's the way that it works. But if we are trusting in Christ and in our works, we're in big trouble. We are in big trouble. In fact, I would say that we lose everything the moment we add works to justification. Literally. Justification by faith separates Christianity from all other religions because all other religions are based on works. And sometimes they're based on a combination of faith and works. It's in your bulletin. Martin Luther once said, and I think he nailed it here, if the doctrine of justification by faith is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost. We lose everything if we start to attribute justification to some works. It's gone. We've just 
departed Christianity. We've just left Christian doctrine. At the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563, the Roman Catholic papacy had issued a series of anti-Reformation canons that are still in effect today. They're still living by these, these doctrinal canons that they, that they wrote back then. Listen to what Canon 9 says. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. What is anathema? Cursed. That is the historic position of Roman Catholicism. That is the current position of Roman Catholicism. This is precisely why I have paralleled or, or I have at least compared Roman Catholicism to ancient Judaism. The Judaizers and Roman Catholics are the same. They both add works to justification. It's not a faith alone deal. What did Paul say about those who add works to justification in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? What did he say? Let them be accursed. They are accursed. The Roman Catholic Church literally says that if you don't have works, you're cursed. Paul is saying if you do, you're cursed. Now, which authority are we going to submit to here? What the Roman Catholic Church says or what the Word of God says to hear through the Apostle Paul? Where's the authority? It's not in the papacy. I mean, this is a serious error. Paul doesn't say that, well, if you have faith and some works, you're justified, and that's just a, a different expression of Christianity. You're okay, but you're just a different kind of Christian. You're in your own Jesus lane. There's other Jesus lanes. No, Paul says that if that's the way you think and believe, you are cursed of God. People are always asking, well, do you think Roman Catholics are saved? Uh, the fact of the matter is, if you believe that you are justified by faith plus works, whoever believes that, I don't care if they're Roman Catholic or whatever, that's not the gospel. And there's no way that I can guarantee that they would be saved because they have a different gospel. No, I can't see the heart. You can't see the heart. I was talking to a guy last night, the minister at this wedding, very nice guy. And he's saying, I think we're going to see a lot of Roman Catholics up there. And I was like, step into my office. It's right here, two feet away from this very loud speaker. And I just proceeded to explain to him, do you not know what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, 8, and 9? That those who... Now, Bear in mind, Roman Catholics believe in dual justification. Do you not know what Paul says or the Word of God says in Galatians 1, 8, and 9? That anyone who does that is cursed. So, so I, I don't think it's wise to just go ahead and, and, and oh, yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Roman Catholics in heaven. If you believe that, I don't see how you can be cursed and headed for heaven. What am I saying? Am I trying to slam Roman Catholics? No, I'm trying to say, preach the gospel to them and quit acting like they know the gospel and they're saved. There's a movement in America today, an ecumenical movement to, to join forces with, with everyone in Christendom. Well, well, 90% of Christendom is not Christianity. 
So, so if, if we don't see Roman Catholics rightly and we unite with them, are we assisting them in their travel to hell? Yes. Because we have to, we have to tell them, you are not, look at the word, you are not justified by what you do, but by how you believe. Well, I do believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Mary. Well, that, that's, look, step into my office again. It's going to get a little further away this time. You can't be putting trust in Mary. You can't be praying to saints. What are you doing? I, I, don't, I don't mean to pick on Roman Catholics, but I just think it's, it's an evangelical error to assume that they're, they're going to heaven or that anyone, anyone who adds works, human merit to justification, anyone who does that, do not assume that they're on the narrow path. Assume that they're on the broad road and help them understand that, that the Word of God is so clear on this matter. Let me take you right over here to Galatians. Read the entire book of Galatians with them. And if they come out of it saying, yeah, I'm going to stick to my tradition, then, hey, I did what I could. I'll pray for you. He curses those who hold to a, a dual justification. He cursed them. That's, that's a, a terrifying scripture there because it tells us that, that, that those who believe a little differently aren't okay. And this idea of different Jesus lanes and expressions of Christianity, that's a lie out of the pit of hell. There's one Lord, one Savior, one Spirit, and one gospel. But people express it differently. That's because people are wrong. That's because people prefer to be part of denominations that have their own way of doing things rather than the pure word of God. When people ask what kind of church we have and then I tell them we're non-denominational, they get weird. I mean, they, they think it's taboo not to be part of a denomination. And I'm like, step into my office a third time. <laughs> that denomination is going to force you to affirm and hold beliefs that aren't biblical. Most of them do that today. Why would you want to associate with that? Well, it's, you know, step into my office a fourth time. It's like, I mean, you just keep going and going and going. Roman Catholicism, countless other things that are called Christian, they, they reject justification by faith alone, which is, we must understand, a linchpin doctrine by which Christianity rises or falls. We're, we're, we're not... Christian when we say we are justified by faith plus works. You are, you are not speaking as an actual Christian. You understand? That's how serious this issue is. Let's go to the next section. Paul opens with this amazing statement and just, yeah, I know we're different from those Gentiles over there, but at the end of the day, none of us are justified by what we do. It's by faith. So guess what? They're the same as us. And, and now he feels it incumbent upon himself to defend his position by giving more facts. This is his defense in verses 17 to 21. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Notice the exclamation point. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not by works is what he's saying. And he says, I live in the, uh, by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me so that I could do that very thing is what he's saying. And he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In verse 17, Paul makes two really big points. The first point is expressed in the first half of the verse 17a. He is saying that if the Judaizers are correct, then he, Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers who were there, they must all be unjustified sinners because they failed to keep the law when they ate and fellowshiped with uncircumcised Gentiles. But if, if, you're, if your theology, if your doctrine is correct, then I guess us apostles, I guess we're just a bunch of unjustified sinners because we just... Apparently, we just broke the law by associating with those, those, that scurvy over there, the uncircumcised Gentiles. I guess we're all lawbreakers here, except for those Judaizers. That's his point. According to the Judaizers, that, that's the way their system works. Literally, think about how insane this would be. Their system works like this. When you keep the law and obey God's commands, all of His commands, you're justified. That's when you're justified. When you believe, of course, in Christ, but when you keep the law, when you, okay, I'm supposed to get circumcised, I do that, I'm supposed to tithe, I do that, I'm supposed to do this. When you do those things in combination to your faith, that's when you're justified. But when you fail to keep the law, you are no longer justified. That, my friends, is Roman Catholicism and why they have Jesus on the cross still dying for your current sins. You have to maintain perfect obedience to the law to remain justified. That's the Judaizer system. That is Roman Catholicism. But the moment you disobey the law, your justification goes out the window and you are now going to face God's judgment. And how has Roman Catholicism overcome that? Go through penance, go to confessional do this, do that. I mean, they give you a whole list of things that you have to do. And then when you fail those things, you have to come back and redo them. Ultimately, what's happening here in the text is the Judaizers are putting the law in place of Christ. They attribute the, the law the power to justify. That, that's, that's where your justification is. It's in the law and in your obedience to the law. That's where the power to save is. It's, it's in your obedience to the law but this power belongs to Christ only. I'm telling you that the papacy does the exact same thing. In fact, it uses Christ's own words against him. There's a, a, a text that they go to all the time where Jesus says, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19, 17. I think what he's actually saying there is that if you have entered into life through the Spirit, you will keep the commands. You're going to want to obey me. That's how you show that you love me. That's what he's actually saying. But with his own words, the papacy denies Christ and abolishes faith in him. They misinterpret that verse. Christ is made to, to lose his good name, his office, and his glory, and is demoted to the status of a law enforcer reproving, terrifying, and even chasing poor sinners around. That's the Christ. 
That's what they've made him into. And that's really Paul's first point. The second point was, in my opinion, more devastating. It's expressed in the other half of the verse, 17b. He is saying that if we become unjustified sinners because of eating and fellowshipping with uncircumcised Gentiles, then Christ himself must be a servant of sin. Why? Well, didn't Christ associate with Gentiles and eat with them and dine with them and hang out with the worst of the worst? Yeah, he certainly did, didn't he? Hung out with a Samaritan woman at the well. She wasn't Jewish. He even went over and preached the gospel to her entire town. John 4, verses 1 through 42, he spent time with a Syrophoenician woman. The, her title alone, Syrophoenician, tells us that she's not Jewish. Mark 7, 24 to 30, he interacted with a Roman centurion. Matthew 8, 5 to 13, he even traveled through Gentile regions. And when I say a Gentile region, there's hardly any, uh, hardly if any Jews in these regions, like the Decapolis. Mark 6, 31, that's uh, a series of 10 cities that were uh, Gentile and Greco-Roman cities that were on the, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, completely disconnected from Judea and Jerusalem, the hub of Judaism. And guess what Jesus did when he was in the Decapolis? He fed 4,000 Gentiles with a few loaves and fishes. No, I'm not confused. There's a story where he did 5,000 on the other side of the lake. Gentile exposure. Oh, heaven forbid. Jesus even said that external things like food, really like doing external things, like hanging out with Gentiles, eating all these things, they have no effect on us spiritually in, in terms of food because they enter the stomach, not the heart of man. Mark 7, 19, what's he saying? So what you eat, if you eat something that's not approved by these Jews over here, it's not defiling you spiritual because it goes in your stomach, not in the totality of who you are. These are, these are things that Jesus did. He associated with Gentiles. He dined with Gentiles. He fed Gentiles. He healed Gentiles. Think of the demoniac that he healed. That guy wasn't Jewish. The guy that had the legion of demons in him, he wasn't Jewish. If Peter and Barnabas and the other Messianic Jews and Paul had become unjustified sinners for eating and fellowshipping with uncircumcised Gentiles, then who is Jesus? What is Jesus? He must be a servant of sin because he spent a lot of time with uncircumcised Gentiles, didn't he? This insane line of thinking flows perfectly with the Judaizers' logic. Paul is basically saying here in the text, according to the Judaizers' system, I guess we are all unjustified sinners because we all ate in fellowship with uncircumcised Gentiles. I suppose even Jesus himself is a servant of sin since he also did this. Is this how it works, Cephas? Is this the truth, Peter? And notice what he says. Certainly not, exclamation point. I like what MacArthur wrote in his commentary at this point. To be called a hypocrite stung enough, but to be called a sinner was unthinkable. And to be accused of making Jesus a servant of sin was shocking and repulsive. Yet the logic of Paul's argument was inescapable. 
By his actions, Peter had, in effect, condemned Jesus Christ. He condemned Jesus when he walked away from those people that Jesus saved, the people that Jesus associated with, to hang out with those false teachers. He condemned Jesus Christ when he did that. And he, he continues by saying, He therefore had to forsake his Judaistic sympathies, break it off with the Judaizers, or continue to make his Lord a liar. Hmm. Verses 18 and 19, Paul uses himself as a hypothetical example. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if anyone, including myself, tries to rebuild a system of legalism after he has destroyed it by believing and preaching the gospel of God's grace, he proves himself to be a transgressor. He proves himself to be a hypocrite and a sinner by abandoning God's grace for the law. He, Paul asserts, I could never do such a thing here. I could never do that. I, I'm in the gospel. I'm not under the law. I could never do it. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. You see, the ideal of legalism, holding to the law and to faith at the same time, it it just clashes with God's clearest truth. If we have accepted grace, embraced grace, and died to the law, because that's what happens, we can never go back to a system of rituals and ordinances. You can't. You can't go back to the law. Once you're in grace, you can't go back to the thing that condemned you. You have to stick to the thing that saved you, and that's grace. The law for believers, I said this last week, it's nothing more than kind of like a schoolmaster or, or, or a set of guidelines that, that help Christians live for Christ, right? Christ tells us to live for Him. The law shows us how to do that. We may not be able to do it perfectly, but there's some value there. But don't be obsessed with it. I think I told the story last week of that gal I met at the gun shop who was wearing a head covering and doing all this stuff. She was trying to live out all the law. Clearly didn't understand grace. And when I, when I talk about law, and when, and when we're talking about the law here, I'm talking specifically about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the moral law. But you need to understand that it, that it stops there as a schoolmaster. It stops there. The law is something that aids us, but it's not our actual master. Christ is our master. Christ is the one who mastered the law. He did what you could never do. It is not our relation to the law that saves us. It is our relationship with Jesus Christ that saves us. If we are under the law, we are condemned because we have broken the law. But if we are in Christ, we are under grace and no longer condemned. Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God says this with full breath in that passage while knowing that we break His law. There's no condemnation for you, you lawless breaker, you lawbreaker. There's no condemnation. I, I, I put my son in place for you. It's because of him there's no condemnation for you. If we are in Christ, we are under grace. We're no longer condemned. We are fully and forever justified by faith, not because of works of the law. Legalism's most destructive effect is it, it, its most destructive effect 
is that it cancels the effect of the cross, cancels out what Christ did there. In verse 20, Paul testifies to this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, to go back under the law would be to cancel our union with Christ's sacrifice on the cross and really to go back under sin. Because that's all the law is really good for. To us believers, it can have more benefit because it kind of shows us how to live for God. But for the most part, if you take yourself and put yourself back under the law, you're just, you've just received condemnation again. Because that's all the law does is condemn, condemn, condemn. To go back under the law is to cancel out what Christ did on the cross. It's to go back under sin, under the power of lawlessness and sin. That's how dangerous this is. If we are trusting in Christ for salvation, we have been crucified with Him. We have died with Him, and we have been raised with Him. Colossians 3.1, when Christ died on the cross and rose, He did that for us, and when we believe in Him, that is applied to us. It's as if we died to the law and to ourselves and rose with Him. And guess what? He now lives in us. He now lives in us. Since Christ is now living in us, in His people, He abolishes the law, condemns sin, and destroys death in us. Those foes or these foes vanish in His presence. Christ abiding in us drives out every evil. This union with Christ delivers us from the demands of the law and separates us from our sinful self, our flesh. As long as we remain in Christ through faith, nothing can hurt us spiritually. And those who are truly saved will remain because the author and perfecter of faith holds us, keeps us, sustains us, causes us to persevere. Our life in this flesh is now about faith and following Christ, not about the law. Do I need to repeat that statement? Because I think a lot of Christians need to hear this. Our life in this flesh, the life we're living now, it is about faith and it is about following Christ, not about following the law, not about adhering to the law. Now, we delight in the law. Why? Because it's God's law, Psalm 119.6, right? I don't want to attack the law. It has a purpose. But our focus is to be on Christ because He saved us from our transgressions and delivered us from the penalty that lawless men and women like you and I deserve. We are to focus on the one who saved us, on Christ, not on the thing that condemned us, the law. We are to focus on the source of our righteousness, which is Christ in us, not on the law, which, which can never, ever, ever justify or make us righteous. That's our focus as Christians. And you've got a lot of Christians who are, who are just overly focused on law. They're all law. You're, you're not even supposed to balance out grace with the law. Well, I think I've just been erring on the side of grace, so maybe I need to introduce some more law. No! Live by that grace. And keep in mind and bear in mind that that grace is not only saving grace, it's sanctifying grace, it's empowering grace, 
It will help you. It will guide you. It will lead you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to live for Christ, to obey. Romans 3.20 through 22 just knocks this out of the park, what Paul wrote here. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Listen to what he says. It's almost like he's writing to the Galatians. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile on this matter. We're all justified the same way. Not by, the law, not by works of the law, but by faith through faith in Christ. This, this sounds just like Galatians. Obviously, the Romans needed to hear this too. Because guess what? The Judaizers were over there harassing them. In verse 21, Paul adds an important statement about nullifying grace. In effect, he was saying to Peter, by withdrawing from fellowship with your Gentile brothers, you take your stand with the Judaizers and against Christ. You nullify the grace of God by denying the need for Christ's death. That's what Paul is essentially saying to Peter. I, I wish he would have said it like I just said it. But the way that these guys spoke back then was quite different in the language. There's a language difference. Now, that's what he's saying. The person who insists that he or she can produce their own justification through their own efforts, they nullify the grace of God, which comes through the death of His only begotten Son on the cross. The, the minute that you, that you add works to justification, you, you take faith and then you add works to that, you, you are essentially nullifying grace. You are canceling out grace. You are canceling out the one who brought grace, the one who died on that old rugged cross. You're canceling him out. If we choose the law, we don't get grace, nor do we get justification. We get condemnation. That's all you get. And we nullify the grace of, of Christ. We nullify His work. You must understand that the law is not about grace, never was, never will be. Its intention is not that at all. It is to convict of sin. No one will be justified by works of the law. It doesn't matter how well you get at the commandments, none of that brings you one ounce of justification. And that is essentially Paul's biggest point in this entire text. Now, I know Peter and, and those other Jewish brothers there, they, they, they thought that they were extra special because they were Jewish. And Paul is saying, you're not because your Jewishness doesn't justify you. Law is not about grace. No one will be justified by works of the law. And yet if we are trusting in the one who loved us and gave himself for us in Christ Jesus we have grace and we are justified permanently. It's an immutable justification. It's never reversed. Lost sinner. If you have been working hard at, and maybe trying to save yourself through your efforts, if you think that at some point God is going to pull out the scales and weigh, weigh your, your good and your bad and your good's going to outweigh your bad, then he's going to accept you. If, if, if that's the game that you've been playing, if that's your understanding of justification and salvation, you need to cease your striving and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's how you will be justified. 
There is no other name under heaven by which men and women shall be saved, Acts 4, 12, one of my favorite passages. There's no way to get justification other than through faith in Christ. He's the only one. And for those of you exhausted saints, because I know what it feels like, I know what it's like to be exhausted from striving, I know. If you've been working hard at maybe trying to earn your way with God, maybe trying to please God, trying to kind of live that, 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 that perfect kind of life, you know, so that God will be happy with you. If that's you, or maybe if you've been or are discouraged and defeated because the law continues to expose your sin and shortcomings, sometimes the, I feel like the law is a battering ram against me. Because I just can't lift up, I can't live up to its standards. Man, I try, and I try. Man, if that's you, cease your striving. Cease your striving and rest in the grace of Christ. What are you doing to yourself? Are you living a double life? You look at the Word of God and you see these things that you think you're supposed to do, and so you're trying really hard to do them. And, and, then, and then when you fail there, you come over to here to Galatians and look at this, and then you, you find a little rest in the gospel. And then once you get a little rest and you feel a little bit restored, then you go back over here to the Old Testament and start trying to plug away and dig yourself out of this hole, and you keep doing that. And then when you're a little bit more defeated there, you, you come back over to the New Testament and you say, I need grace now. And you, you're playing this tennis match, this ball bouncing back and forth between law and gospel. Stop! That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're under grace. Don't do it. I've been doing this my whole faith walk, and I'm done. Who else is done? Is this not hard? It's not supposed to be hard. You know, living the Christian life is difficult because of persecution and these other things. And I think putting your flesh to death is not an easy thing, but it's not supposed to be hard because we keep bouncing between law and gospel. We are gospel and gospel alone. And, and I am not, I'm not trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit who convicts His people when they sin. That's a, that's a work that He does. It's imperative to understand the difference. But the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you back to the law that condemns you endlessly. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. There's a difference between being convicted of sin and trying to live out all God's ordinances. There's a huge difference. Cease your striving. Understand this. This is the biggest point that, that, that Paul made, that I could make, it, it, that I can make now. If, if you are in Christ by grace through faith, you are justified fully completely, permanently, eternally. It's done. What do you think Jesus meant when he said it is finished? I've done everything necessary for you. Now rest in my grace, walk in my grace, live in my grace, share my grace. That's it. That's all we have to do. We are forever justified. There's nothing that I could ever do 
to remove my justification. You know, we, we, we change our clothes every day, don't we? Well, some people don't. They need to. Not in here, but I've worked with a few lately. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I knew a guy that if he took his clothes off, they would stand up on their own. But we, we change our clothes every day, don't we? Pretty much, right? When you take off your clothes and change, guess what you don't take off? The righteousness of Christ. It's embedded in you. It's in you because Christ is in you. When, when you sin, the righteousness of Christ doesn't flee and run off of you like a kite in the wind. It stays on you all the time. You're always righteous because of Christ's merit. You're always justified because of Christ's righteousness and because you have faith. It'll never end. I'll close with a piece of advice from, from the doctor. Dr. Phil. Just kidding. I would never quote that guy. <laughs> doctor, somebody called me that the other day. I'm like, huh? I had visions of Maury Povich, and it, just, it was bad. It's like, no, no, I'm not Dr. Phil. I don't even have a doctorate. I'm a dummy. But I want to close with, with a piece of advice from the doctor, Dr. Luther. Martin Luther had a doctorate. Listen to what he says here. I love this. I just love how practical he was. This is from his commentary. By the way, he has a commentary on Galatians that's just incredible. It, it, it really, I, I don't know if it's been modernized or whatever, but it, it, it's not hard to read, and it's just wonderful. He says, when you see a person squirming in the clutches of the law, and I know he's referring to a brother in the Lord here. When you see a person um, squirming in the clutches of the law, say to him, get things straight. You let the law talk to your conscience. Make it talk to your flesh. Wake up and believe in Jesus Christ, the conqueror of law and sin. Faith in Christ will lift you high above the law into the heaven of grace. Though law and sin remain, they no longer concern you because you are dead to the law and dead to sin. Isn't that great? And he says this, Blessed is the person who knows how to use this truth in times of distress. He can say, Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. I know I have committed many sins and I continue to sin daily, but my conscience has nothing to do with the likes of you. Because my conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better law, the law of grace. 